0: Chapter 6 of the Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 Swift River. The outlet of the lake on which Woodcraft Camp was situated was made up of several sluggish streams which twisted and turned in tortuous fashion through low, boggy land, with here and there an island of higher ground on which a few white pines had found footing. In places the water appeared to be almost stagnant, so covered was the surface with pads of the white water-lily and the coarser yellow cow-lily. Huge pickerel lurked there, and the marshy shores were a veritable paradise for frogs. On every half-submerged log the muskrats had left their sign, and half hidden among the reeds and rushes might be caught the occasional glimpses of the unsightly but interesting houses which they were building against the winter. Here the great blue heron and his smaller cousin, the black-crowned night heron, lived richly through the summer, and from the reeds and coarse bunch grass of the marshes the hollow boom of the stake driver, or American bittern, often sounded, especially in the spring or early summer. Half a mile from the lake as the crow flies, but nearly double that distance because of their turning and doubling, the streams came together and formed Swift River. Even there the name seemed a misnomer, for though there was a very perceptible current it was still sluggish, and either side were long setbacks, and these undoubtedly were no small factor in giving to the river its appearance of indolence, for the volume of water being spread out over a great surface had failed to cut a deep channel, and, as at that point the natural fall the river bed was slight, there was nothing to hurry it on. Out from one of the contributory streams, under this placid beginning of Swift River shot two canoes, just as the first long shaft from the rising sun glanced over Mount Seward and pierced the shroud of mist through which they had been feeling their way. In the bow of the foremost sat Plimpton, now generally dubbed Sister, while the closely knit muscular figure at the stern paddle was Lewis Woodhull. In the bow of the second canoe, Hal Harrison was setting the stroke, Upton taking the steering paddle by virtue of his larger experience in this sort of work. Both canoes were heavily loaded, the weight being so distributed as to be greatest slightly aft of a midship. This, by making the bow a trifle lighter than the stern, gave the steersman better control of his craft, and at the same time would cause it to rise promptly to the waves in rough water. As the canoes glided out on the swift river, Hal stopped paddling and turned a disappointed and at the same time quizzical face to Upton. "'Say, Walt,' he drawled, "'I guess the fellow who named this Swift River "'must have done all his previous paddling in a bathtub. "'This looks to me about as venturesome "'as a paddle on Central Park Pond. "'Shut up, you old croaker,' "'replied Walter with a good-natured grin. "'This little old river will get Swift good and plenty soon enough, "'and don't you forget it. "'I bet that before we quit it "'there will be more than once "'that that same little puddle in Central Park "'would look mighty comfortable to you. "'Just you get busy with your paddle.' Woodhull's out of sight already.' Hal turned. Sure enough, the other canoe had rounded the bend and was lost to view. Without another word, he settled down to business to make up the lost distance. To Walter, the river was familiar for the first few miles, for along it had been the first stage of his famous trip the year previous up Lonesome Pond with Big Jim the guide. To Woodhall, it was also familiar to the Lonesome Pond portage, but to the two bowmen, it was all new.' Hal's feeling of disappointment speedily gave way to one of constantly increasing delight. The setbacks became fewer. The brown, limpid waters confined within narrower banks began to rush as if now that they were fairly started, they were in a hurry to reach the mighty stream in which they would mingle for their final journey to the great ocean. They swirled around the ends of stranded logs and eddied over hidden rocks, and always they slipped along, faster and still faster. The shores were still low and swampy back for some little distance, where they rose in sharp slopes to the still sharper ridges. These, in turn, were the foothills of the mountains. And overall, clear to the water's edge, was the mystery of the great forest. The light craft of the young voyagers seemed strangely insignificant in the immensity of the forest reaches, and as Miles succeeded Miles something of this feeling crept into the hearts of the three younger paddlers so that the first thrill of adventure little by little gave way to something of awe and sense of reverence for nature, such as only he who penetrates to the heart of her great temples can feel. It was late in August, and every few hundred feet would blaze one or two spikes of the beautiful cardinal flower close to the water's edge, like candles on the altar of the waning summer. Giant yellow birches towered above, their feet buried deep in the cool black muck of the swamps, Occasionally a maple, over-eager to don the glory of its summer robe, would show a dash of red, and always the brown stream slipped on smoothly and swiftly as if it too, sensed the changing season and had a mission to perform before the fetters even then being forged in the far north, should bind it helpless in the arms of winter. As they rounded a bend and came into the head of a long stretch of forest seemingly unbroken save by the river gleaming like burnished silver where the sun, now almost directly overhead, fell full upon it, Hal lay down his paddle for a moment and, stretching his arms above his head, drank in the glory of it. "'Isn't it wonderful?' he cried. "'It makes me think of that poem of Longfellow's. Still stands the forest primeval.' "'the murmuring pines and the hemlocks. "'You know the rest of it. "'I can almost believe that we are the first white men "'who have ever penetrated this wilderness.' "'Woodhall, who had allowed his canoe to drift "'in order to give Plimpton a breathing spell, smiled. "'Your poetic imagination does you more credit "'than your powers of observation, Hal, he said dryly. Please to note that your primeval forest "'immediately about us is mostly second growth.' AND COMMERCIALLY WORTHLESS AT THAT. OVER THERE IS SOMETHING THAT LOOKS TO ME VERY MUCH LIKE AN OLD SKIDWAY, AND THOSE STRANDED LOGS ARE ELOQUENT OF THE WHITE MAN'S PRESENCE LONG AGO, AND MORE THAN THAT, OF THE WHITE MAN'S INSATIABLE GREED. THESE FORESTS HAVE BEEN SKINNED, MY SON, AND BEAUTIFUL AS THEY ARE THEY HAVE BEEN BELIGHTED BY THE WHITE MAN'S CURSE. Hardly in my lifetime or yours they are likely to regain the majesty which prompted Longfellow's beautiful lines, and which the red man knew when he called the wilderness his own. Lewis spoke with the bitterness of the trained forester who deplores the reckless lumbering methods which in a few short years have wasted a nation's inheritance. Oh, can it, Lewis, can it! Let a fellow dream his little dreams without waking him so rudely, Al retorted good-naturedly. "'This is primeval enough for me,' he added. Once more the paddles were dipped, and only a few minutes later Walter caught a sound for which he had been straining his ears for the last mile. Hal did not hear it at first. But as it grew in volume to a dull roar, he suddenly turned a face in which both eagerness and startled wonder were blended. "'What's that?' he asked. "'Rapids,' replied Walter briefly. "'Do we shoot them?' His voice was eager and excited. No, said Walter, and then noting the disappointed look which swept across Hal's face, he added, Well, we run into the head of them, and we'll have plenty of chance for a wedding if we don't look out. Woodhall was waiting for them to come up. As they drew alongside, he gave Walter a few brief directions. You follow me. We'll hit those rapids and about the middle of the river, and then shoot over to the right bank. "'You'll see the little strip of beach "'and the big birch leaning out over it. "'After you pass the big rock, "'which is half out of the water, "'be sure to go to the left of it "'and hug it close. "'Line up that birch "'and hold your bow on it. "'Remember, "'to the left of the big rock "'and hold for the birch. "'Above all, keep your nerve. "'Now follow me.' "'Walter gripped his paddle a bit tighter "'and his breath came a trifle faster "'as they came in sight of the line of white that indicated the beginning of broken water. He remembered how he held his breath at this place the year before, and that, too, when he was with Big Jim, the best guide in the mountains. Then he had only to sit tight, trusting wholly to Big Jim. Now he occupied the Big Guide's place, and on his own quickness of eye and sure control depended the making of a successful landing at the portage. He recalled Big Jim's warning to sit still, and leaning forward he yelled the same warning to Hal. The latter did not attempt to reply, for the roar of the water was so great, but he nodded his head and Walter knew that he had heard. Woodhall's canoe was fairly in the midst of the broken water now, and just for a fleeting instant Walter wondered how Plimpton's nerve was holding out, but he had little time to think of anything but his own troubles. On all sides the river was a churning, tumbling, roaring mass of foam, and here and there great grey rocks shouldering above the flying spray. The danger, as Walter well knew, lay not in these, but in the ugly boulders which, like beasts of prey, lay in hiding just beneath the surface, ready to seize upon whatever the swift current should bring their way. The canoe felt the increased movement of the water and was sweeping onward at racing speed. Hal stopped paddling. Walter yelled at him. Hal heard the voice but could not distinguish the words. He swiftly glanced behind to see what had gone wrong. Could it be that Walter had lost control of the canoe? A thought startled him, for his nerve was already shaken by the tumult about him, and the excitement of a first experience magnified the apparent danger. Paddle! Confound you! Paddle! yelled Walter, with a sudden sweep of his own blade shooting the canoe past a rock which showed snarling teeth just at the very surface. Al could hear no better than before, but he could read Walter's lips— and remembering that a good scout obeys first and questions afterwards, he once more began to swing his blade, and with a little sigh of relief, Walter concentrated his attention on the water ahead. One or two close shaves had taught him that often treachery lurks in the seemingly smooth place edged with white, and that safety lies in the very midst of the froth itself. Just ahead loomed the great rock of which Lewis had warned him to keep to the left, As he was then going, it seemed easier and safer to pass to the right of it, and he was sorely tempted to do so. What difference could it make? The water looked as open on one side as the other. Then, and just in time, he remembered that he was a scout under orders, and whatever he might think, it was his business to obey. Holding hard against the current, he saw the bow slowly swing over to the left, Then before the stern should be caught and forced out of his control by the pressure of the water, he drove his blade in swift, hard strokes, into which he put every muscle that could be brought to bear. The canoe shot ahead at an angle to the great rock. The bow caught the impulse of the split current to the left, and with a wide swing of his paddle he straightened the stern, and they shot past the danger so close that Walter could have put his hand on the rock. THE BOY GAVE A SIGH OF RELIEF, FOR THIS WAS HIS FIRST EXPERIENCE IN THE POST OF RESPONSIBILITY IN RUNNING RAPIDS. HE SAW NOW THAT IF HE had OBEYED HIS FIRST IMPULSE AND COME DOWN ON THE RIGHT OF THE BIG ROCK, HE WOULD HAVE BEEN POCKETED IN A NASTY NET OF UGLY BOULDERS, WHICH WOULD HAVE MEANT DISASTER. THERE WAS NO TIME TO THINK OF WHAT MIGHT HAVE BEEN. AHEAD AND TO THE RIGHT LAY THE TINY BEACH WHICH WAS THE BEGINNING OF THE TRAIL AROUND THE FAMOUS SWIFT RIVER FALLS. To miss this meant almost certain disaster in the rapids below. Even should these be successfully run, there would be no possible means of avoiding being swept over the falls. Woodall was just landing as Walter lined up the bow of his canoe with the leaning birch according to the chief's instructions. With his eyes glued to this landmark, Walter could pay little attention to the conditions immediately about him. Lewis had said to hold his bow on that tree and keep his nerve, that meant anything at all it meant that there was a clear passage in line with a point just beyond the big rock and the birch tree and so long as he held his craft true he would be in no immediate danger hal on the contrary had failed utterly to grasp the meaning of woodhall's instructions to walter if indeed he had paid any attention at all to them now sitting in the bow where he could see to advantage every threatening danger the situation to use his own description got his goat in other words, he lost his nerve to some extent, and therewith his head momentarily. Just before them and dead ahead, not two inches under water, was a great boulder. It was the very one which the year before Walter had seen with so much the same feeling that possessed Hal now, excepting that Walter had closed his eyes and awaited the shock of the crash, which seemed unavoidable. While Hal, forgetful of orders, suddenly awakened to action— With a wild yell he threw his weight upon his paddle in a frantic effort to turn the canoe to one side. Walter, meanwhile, had been paddling steadily in an effort to hold the bow of the canoe directly on the leaning birch. Just as Hal yelled, the canoe had swung off a point, pulled by a cross eddy in the current. And at the very instant that Hal threw his weight forward on his paddle, Walter, with a vigorous twist of his own blade, had swung the bow sharply back in line with the birch. Hal's effort, meeting with reduced resistance because the bow was already swinging away, had a double result. Hal, meaning less resistance than he expected, and the extreme bow having little room in which to regain his balance, all but pitched overboard, causing the canoe to lurch to port so that before Walter could right it the top of a wave had broken over the low gunwale amidship, At the same time Hal's effort, added to the twist Walter had already given, drove the bow too far to starboard, and the light craft struck a glancing blow on a rock which Hal had not seen at all, so intent had he been on the first threatened danger. Fortunately the canoe had not hit fairly, and with a sickening rasping and scraping it slid off, and a second later swung into the back eddy, which set over toward a little strip of shingle. Woodall stood ready to catch the bow and draw them in. Phew! "'You youngsters had a close call that time. "'It was touch and go for a minute there,' he exclaimed as the two boys disembarked, "'then wisely said no more, biding his time until their nerves were less shaken "'before driving home to Hal the lesson of his experience. "'Walter, now that the strain was over, found himself all of a shake, "'and his strength seemed suddenly to desert him as he stepped out onto the little beach. "'His temper, too, had been badly strained by the excitement of the narrow escape,' You're a pretty bow man, you are. What the deuce are you trying to do? He began hotly. But Woodhull broke in with a peremptory order for all hands to lend a hand in emptying the canoes. By the time this was finished, Walter had cooled off and then wisely held his tongue. End of chapter 6